Good morning, everybody. We are still going through the Gospel of Matthew, and most of you are aware for the last few weeks we've been in a section of the Gospel account that is dealing with the betrayal, trial, uh, crucifixion of Jesus. So just a little bit of a heads up, a parental kind of warning. Um, we're not going to like focus or fixate on any of this stuff, but we are going to be looking into the sufferings of Jesus because that's where the text would have us. Uh, and some of that can be kind of graphic and uh, the imagery is intense, but it, I, 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 I'm not going to be making that the, the, the main point of it, but just, but just a heads up, because we do, need, we do need to go there and we do need to know what the scripture is talking about. So last week, um, I began this sermon by taking us back to Genesis. And there is a reason for that. And that is um, the gospel writers and the first Christians all saw the story of Jesus as the climax of the long story of Israel. So it's not as if just the story of Jesus is a isolated story about a man. This is the climax, the ending, the resolve, and the solution to a very long story that's been taking place all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And that story gets its shape and structure from the book of Genesis, particularly the first few pages, the first few chapters. And so what I want to do is sort of do what we did last week, review a little bit of Genesis, go to another spot in the creation account, and then we'll jump back to the actual passage in Matthew. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about how God creates the world, and at the climax of that creation account, God creates humans, Adam and Eve. And there's a zoomed-in account of that in Genesis 2-7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. If you recall, uh, there were some important Hebrew kind of things going on here that the text is actually saying, Then the Lord God formed the... Adam, it's translated as man, but what's interesting is that the word for man in Hebrew is also the name for man. So in English, it would, if we were to do this right in English, it would be like, and then, the, then God made man and he named him man. He's man. In Hebrew, it's God made the Adam and he named him Adam. And he names this Adam who he made as the first Adam, and he takes him from the dust of the ground. And the Hebrew word for ground is Adama. So let's kind of make sure we're all on the same page. God creates an Adam. He names him Adam. And the way he creates him is by taking dust from the Adama, and it's a related Hebrew word. Now, in this account, the first humans are said to have dominion over creation. They are a delegated authority. The imagery is like Adam and Eve are royal rulers, delegated royal ru rulers under the authority of the true king of kings, the Lord of both heaven and earth. But rather than do the will of God, they rebel and believe the lies of the serpent. After this sin, God shows up and gives three words of judgment, a word of judgment to the serpent, a word of judgment to the man, and a word of judgment to the woman. Last week, we looked at one of the words of judgment to the serpent and how even in the words of judgment, there's a glimmer of hope. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. She shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his hill. In other words, there's going to be a great war going on. There's going to be strife, enmity between the serpent and his offspring and then this mysterious phrase, the offspring of the woman. Now, immediately, you have to understand, this is narrative shaping. For the rest of Scripture, you are looking forward to someone who is going to come as an offspring of Eve who will ultimately defeat 
the works of the serpent. Now, if you were reading this for the first time, the first logical candidate for this serpent slayer who will like bruise or crush the head of the serpent would be the offspring of Eve, which is her kids. And the first two kids that we're introduced to is Cain and Abel. And because we're dealing with ancient Near Eastern literature, the first best possible candidate for the one who will strike the head of the serpent is the firstborn, which is Cain. But what happens in our story? Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So the first possible candidate that we get in scriptures, the one that might defeat the serpent, turns out to himself be in the way of the serpent, in the the line of the offspring of the serpent. Cain, his name in Hebrew means something like to possess or to acquire, or it can mean something like spear or spearhead, which gives us an image for Cain. He is the violent, murderous son who takes up the way of weapon, the way of the spear, to kill the innocent brother. And Abel, likewise, is the innocent son who makes the acceptable sacrifice to the father. Remember, his sacrifice was accepted and Cain's was rejected. And then it said uh, Abel's blood is crying up from the ground. Blood in Hebrew is the word dam, and it also sounds a lot like Adam and Adamah. So you get this image that there are human beings, and the sons of Adam, rather than serve God, they they, they murder, and the dam goes into the Adamah, and now it's crying out for justice. And then we paralleled that with the account in the Gospel of Matthew where we had before us two different sons, You had Jesus, who was a son of the Father, and then you had a guy named Barabbas. And if you were here, you remember that Barabbas' name literally means son of the Father. It's Bar, son, Abba, Father. And so at the trial of Jesus, there's two two choices before us. The way of Cain, the way of the spear, the way of violence, and then the way of sacrificial love. And that day, what did the crowds, and by extension, all of humanity choose? Give us Barabbas. Jesus, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Give us the son of Cain. Give us the son of Adam. Give us the one who walks in the way of the spear. That's what we desired. And those two paths are always before us, the way of sacrificial love or the way of Cain. Now, one other section in Genesis that I want to draw our attention to is Genesis 3.17, because just as the stories of Cain and Abel are formative to to the entire story of Scripture, so is this portion This is God's words of judgment to the man, the Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what's this basically saying? It says, Adam... You have sinned and rebelled, and because of you now, the ground is cursed. You're going to work hard all the days of your life. And after you work hard all the days of your life, when you get to the very end, guess what happens? You die. And then what happens? You go back into the ground, which you cursed, and there you return to dust from from which you were made. It's great news. You're going to work all the time. It's going to be hard. Life will be difficult. And then you die. And you go back to the ground. 
Happy Sunday. There you have it. Now, now follow, follow this though. It's God makes an Adam, who he names Adam, and he takes him from the Adamah, and there is life in the blood of man, the Dom. His sons murder and spill innocent Dom, and, and it goes into the ground. God says, because of the rebellion of man, now the Adamah, which the Adam was taken from, is cursed ground. It's cursed earth. It's cursed Adamah. And when a human being reaches the end of his life, he goes back to the cursed ground. Now, it's all bad news. There's a little glimmer of hope, though. Additional glimmer of hope. Because one, we've been promised that one day a son of Eve will come who will strike at the head of the serpent, even though his heel will be bruised. But then also there's hope because immediately after humans rebel, they become aware of their nakedness and their shame. If you're familiar with the story, they're naked, they're ashamed, and they run from God. But guess who shows up? God pursues them. He pursues the ones who are naked and ashamed, and rather than punish, what does he do? He takes skins, he takes garments of skin, and he clothes their nakedness and shame, which gives you a clue into the character of this God. So what I'd like us to do is take all of this imagery, Adam, ground, earth, curse, thorns, thorns and thistles are the image of the cursed ground, blood, innocent blood. Take all of those images and thoughts and bring them with us to today's passage. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather than that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus delivered him to be crucified. So again, the crowds that day had two choices. Barabbas, literally, son of the father, and then the son of this different father. And one is the innocent brother who makes the acceptable sacrifice, and one is the one who walks in the way of Cain, the way of violence, the way of the spear. And humanity, again and again and again, chooses which path, which way, the way of Cain. And so Jesus is handed over to be flogged and to be crucified. Now, this is just recorded in one line. He's handed over to be flogged and crucified. And it's almost as if the authors don't draw any attention to this fact. And there's a reason for that. It's, it's because the, the primary readers of this document in the first century, the people who wrote it, they knew what a Roman flogging was like. They knew what a crucifixion was like. And so they don't want to draw our attention to it because they have the images in their mind. If you had witnessed a Roman flogging, you don't want to recall that and bring those memories back to attention because it's horrific. So you record the historical fact to record what happened so people know what happened, but you don't focus or fixate on it. The problem is we are 2,000 years removed. We're not like them. We don't know what these things were like. These readers knew. We don't. And so what I want to do is briefly just describe some of the things that were taking place. And again, I'm not, I'm not going to focus or fixate on this, but we do need to be aware of the sufferings of our Lord. So in, in a few words, it says, having scourged him, a whole host of things take place. The first misconception that we have to clear up is something that you might have heard, uh, especially if you grew up in church. It's this idea that when people were flogged in Jesus' day, there was a law that said you, had to be, you, you couldn't be whipped 
more than 39 times, that 40 was the limit, and so they made 40 minus one be the cutoff. It's called like a flogging, the 40 minus one, 39 lashings. And the reason why people say that is because there's Jewish law that says that, that a man cannot be whipped with this type of torture up to 40 because 40 times would, would take someone to the point of death, and that's not the point. However, we are not dealing with Jewish authorities anymore. We're in a Roman jurisdiction. There is no limit to the flogging. There is no limit to the whipping. The, the, the flogging is designed to break an individual, break him to the point that he dies, passes out, loses his mind. And the only relief you get is not when you get to 39, but when the soldiers are all done, then you get transferred over to your next phase of suffering. The whip that would have been used likely would have been a whip with multiple branches or tails and there would have been iron balls um, intertwined in the tails of the whip so that when you snapped the whip, it would come down all the harder and in addition, the iron balls would, would break flesh, they'd bruise and do more damage. Additionally, oftentimes they put bones into the whip or hooks so that every time the whip slashed upon your back with its multiple tails, it would grab flesh and pull out. There are sources that say that they would see whole pieces of flesh hanging down from the victims of a Roman flogging. It was designed to inflict agonies upon agonies. And so many times people died from that alone. Many people would, would pass out. Some people just, they, they would be broken, they'd lose their mind. Now one of the things you have to remember is that a few weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus says this. He says, I can call down an army of angels at any given moment. So when Jesus is on trial, he's saying, make no mistake about it. Like, I'm not on trial. I don't have to prove my case. I don't have to plead my innocence. If I wanted to, at this moment, I can call down an army of angels that Rome could not even stand before. Now, you put this in context to the sufferings of our Lord. But after how many times the whip hits your back and tears out your flesh, at what point do you call down the angels? Enough, enough of this suffering. Nevertheless, our Lord endures. Strike after strike, blow after blow, our Lord endures. And he pushes forward. For what? For whom? Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews and they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. So, there is obviously horrific pain being put upon Jesus, but there's also a parallel type of suffering that's easy to miss. They are intentionally humiliating and shaming the Lord. And this is very difficult for us to understand because modern people, our categories of shame and uh, humiliation are, are completely different than first century Jewish culture and many cultures to this day. Like in our culture, you hear people, like they take pride in the fact that they don't have any shame. Like in, in our culture, you can boast about the fact that oh, I don't have any shame for whatever I do. 
For most cultures, including Jewish culture, humiliating acts of shame are devastating. So there's a parallel suffering going on, physical suffering and then humiliation and shame. Because what are they doing? They are stripping Jesus. They're putting him forth to be tortured as a naked person. This would be completely shaming to a, to a first century Jewish man. And then there's a sep- fake scepter and a fake crown and a fake kind of royal robe. So picture our Lord there. Beaten beyond recognition. Flogged who knows for how long. Barely recognizable. And he's enduring their blows and their hits and their spitting and their mocking. And you could almost hear the voice of Satan at this point. Like, is this why you came? You came to save these people? I mean, think about it. The people who are doing this are image bearers. They're made in the image of God. These are human beings doing this to another individual. This is what you're saving? This is what you're dying for? And look at the history of humanity. This is, this is what we do. We kill each other, we torture each other, we hurt each other, we wrong each other, we betray each other. This is what you're doing it for. Nevertheless, he endures. Now look at the elements. There's a reed that's supposed to be like a scepter. There's a robe that's supposed to be like a royal robe. And then a crown, but a crown not of precious metal or precious stone, but a crown of thorns. Thorns, the symbol of a curse. And they're doing this. This is what we'd call a mock coronation. They're pretending as if they're coronating or, or, or anointing the king. They're calling him king of the Jews and they're pretending to bow before him. At what point do you call down the angels? He endures. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, and when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Now, Jesus probably likely started carrying his own cross, but because of the flogging and the beating, he'd already been up all night and mistreated and abused. He didn't have the strength to carry it. Likely, he would have just been carrying the horizontal cross beam of the cross. The vertical beam was probably a permanent place on Golgotha so that you'd have many people crucified on the same vertical stake, but then you would have the horizontal cross beam carried by the victim, and then they would be raised upon it at the time of execution. But he can't carry that. So who, care, who helps him carry it? Well, they just grab someone in the crowd named Simon. The question, who should have been there helping him carry that cross? Who should have been there? At minimum, the disciples. The disciples said, we, we're gonna follow you, we'll go even to death. Jesus warned them, if you're gonna follow me, you have to learn to carry a cross. But they're gone. And who in particular of the 12 disciples should have been there carrying that cross? Peter. Peter was the one who promised, I will never leave you, I won't forsake you, even if I have to die, I will be by your side. Where's Peter? He's gone. You gotta remember, Peter isn't even Peter, right? Peter is not his birth name. Jesus gave Peter the name Rock when he confessed the Messiahship of Jesus. But what is Peter's birth name? It's Simon. Where's Simon Peter? Where are the disciples? Where is the Simon who confessed Christ to be Lord? Where is the Simon who promised his allegiance? He's nowhere to be found. Another random Simon 
forced by the Roman soldiers, will be the one to bear Jesus' cross with him. And they're going to a place called Golgotha, which Matthew actually informs us called the place of the skull. This would have been a, a place of execution. There probably would have been multiple executions and crucifixions there taking place throughout the years. So this is a known place where criminals go to die. Now it's fascinating, it's called the place of the skull. It's as if the very hill that Christ is crucified on is symbolic of death. It's the place of the skull, it's the place of death. It's the place of suffering. Now as Jesus looks to Golgotha and he sees the vertical cross beam, there's a question that we should be asking. Who should be going to that cross? Who should be going to the cross? Now, the, the scriptures tell us that there was two criminals crucified alongside of Jesus, to his left and his right. Oftentimes it's translated robbers. That's a, that's a misfortunate translation. The people who were crucified next to Jesus were insurrectionists. Was there another insurrectionist just in our story? Who should be going to that cross? Barabbas. Likely what happened is the Romans quelled an insurrection and they captured multiple people and they're gonna crucify them all, but one guy got out because we asked for him. We asked for the son of Cain to be released. But when Christ goes up to Golgotha, that cross is there and Barabbas should be going to it. Which then you have to understand by extension means more than just Barabbas because who is Barabbas? Barabbas is the son of the father. He is the son of Adam. He, like all other humans, all other Adams, walk in the way of the first Adam. They walk in the way of Cain. And likewise, once again, by extension, us. We walk in our father, the first Adam, and walk in the way of Cain. So whose cross is that? It's Barabbas and all the sons of the first Adam. It's you, it's me. Then it says, someone offers him wine mixed with gall to drink. Now this is likely a pain-dulling mixture. So somebody has mercy, enough mercy to come up with something, to give Jesus something to, to dull a little bit of his pain, to calm his sufferings. But Jesus tastes it, knows what it is, and rejects it. He will not drink of that cup. Why? He won't drink of that cup because he has already told his father that he will drink of another cup. Go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there is any other way for me to get out of this, if, if there's a way that I don't have to drink this cup, may it be so. Nevertheless, Jesus says, Father, if it is your will, I will drink of that cup. And he will drink of that cup every last drop. So he rejects this one. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is king of the Jews. Okay. This is really easy to miss. But did you catch how fast we went from the previous verse? They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it too. Then they crucified him. And we're moving on. The entire crucifixion is recorded right there. Do you notice how quick that is? There's, there's no mention of nails. There's no mention of how he's suspended. All it says is he refused this drink, then they crucified him, and now we're to the next part of the passage. 
And it's because they didn't want to focus or fixate on this. They had seen crucifixions. Rome had often lined the roads with crosses of anyone who dared to challenge Rome. They had seen that type of human suffering. So it's as if they just merely record the historical detail because they all know what it's like. And again, the problem is we don't, we don't know what that entails. And we're not going to focus or fixate on it again, but there are, there are some elements that you have to know. First, Jesus, when he was led up to Golgotha, he would have been laid down on the ground and stripped naked. Remember, he was stripped naked and he was mocked with the fake robe. Then they put the clothes back on him. And now they've marched him up to Golgotha and they'll strip him naked again. So you have the Lord, the King of glory, our Lord, suffering, and now the humiliation is intensified. There's gonna, this is a, Golgotha is a public place. You're going to read in a moment that people are passing by. Jesus is crucified in the most public place in the area and he's stripped naked. This is shame. This is humiliation. There's a possibility that because of Jewish sensibilities, they gave him a small loincloth. That's unlikely. But even if that's the case, nevertheless, for Jewish sensibilities, he's, he is naked. And this is done to shame him. The text doesn't even mention nails. It doesn't even talk about it. The Christ would have been nailed, likely between his wrists, possibly his hands with some, maybe some rope supporting it. There's all kinds of debate, but that's, that's not the point. When the nails go into your wrist... They are going through flesh. They are going through nerves. The pain is indescribable. And people in Jesus' day would have heard the screams that came from men who were being nailed to the cross and they didn't ever want to hear those in their head again. Jesus, remember, is already beaten and tortured and and flogged. So then he's nailed immovable to a Roman cross. He then likely would have had his own weight sort of collapse on his chest so it would be difficult to breathe. So again, we can't be certain, but most likely he would have had to lift himself up by pushing on the nail that's driven through his feet, the bottom of his legs, to lift up to be able to expand his chest to be able to take a deep enough breath in order to survive. And the cross was designed like this. It was torture perfected meant to make someone suffer, suffer unthinkable ways, in unthinkable ways. So lifting again and again just to get a breath. Your back that's been flogged and scourged is rubbing up against the wooden cross. At what point do you call down the angels? At what point do you call them down It's enough is enough? Majority of the time, crucifixion victims lost control of their bowels. Um, Golgotha is a known execution site, so the bugs, the insects, and the scavenger animals would know this is where they get fed. And so you have to understand that the image of the cross is the worst possible image you can think of. It is a man nailed immovable in absolute agony. Naked, possibly losing control of his bowels, bowels, bugs, and scavengers surrounding. It is the most cursed image and the most cursed way to die. And so you picture our Lord there. You picture him. He endures. For who? For what? He endures. 
Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. So there's an image here. Christ is, is, is nailed to the cross and he is suffering. Um, by the way, the, the English word excruciating was a word that was, was basically invented to describe the most horrific type of torture. And excruciating literally means out of the cross. Ex, out of, and then cruce, the cruciating is cross. So he is in excruciating agony and he's suspended between heaven and earth on the cursed tree. So the cross points to heaven and it points below. He is suspended between heaven and earth. To his left and right are two criminals. Now who should be to his left and right? If you remember, several months ago in the Gospel of Matthew, two of his disciples came up and asked him. They said, Lord, when you enter into your glory, can we be at your left and your right? Do you remember what Jesus told them? Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we're able. We'll go with you, Lord. We'll be by your side, even if we have to die. Where is James and John, those who asked those questions? Where is the disciples? Where is Simon called Peter? They're nowhere to be found. Jesus is left alone to bear the weight of this cross. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. There's three groups of people. There's those who are passing by, the chief priests and the elders, and then the criminals. And all three groups of people join in the humiliation and mocking of Jesus. It's as if Matthew says, the whole world has turned on Jesus. Those who pass by, the religious leaders, and even the criminals all mock the crucified one. It's as if to say, this is what we all do. Now there's something else going on here. How do the groups mock? How do they taunt Jesus? Did you notice their words? If you are the son of God, come down from that cross. If you are the son of God, come down. If you're the son of God, save yourself. Now do you remember this phrase? If you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. Matthew chapter four, in the desert, in the wilderness, Jesus battles the serpent of, the old, of old and Satan tempts Jesus three times. If you are the son of God, end your suffering, end your hunger, end your pain. Turn this, this rock to bread. In the hurt, in the hunger, in the, in the pain. If you're the son of God. If you're the son of God, go into the temple mount and fall down because you know if you are the son of God, your father will save your life. If you're the son of God, you can worship me and have all the kingdoms of the world. Now, if you remember from the Gospel of Luke, after Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by the serpent of old, what does the text say? It says, Satan left him and waited for an opportune time. And now the words of the serpent are back at the most critical moment. If you are the Son of God, 
if you are the son of God. It repeats again and again. If you're the son of God, save yourself. If you're the son of God, the father will save you. And you can think about it at this point. Like, Satan, for every other son of Adam, Satan has been victorious. Every other son of Adam falls to temptation, rebels against God. They sin and they fail and they turn against the one who loves them. So at this moment, it appears, like if you're reading this, it appears as if this second Adam is going to fall just like the first Adam. He's abandoned. The religious leaders have turned on him. His disciples have turned on him. The people have turned on him. Rome has turned on him. Every single person has turned on him and he's nailed immovable, suspended between heaven and earth, suffering in agony, waiting his death. There's no rescue. There's no victory here to be found. It appears as if Satan wins again and the second Adam will fall just like the first. So picture our Lord, naked, beaten beyond recognition, flogged, every single person around him mocking him, and his blood goes into the ground. Another Adam falls to the way of the serpent. But then when you begin to see what is actually taking place. You begin to see things in different light because Jesus' blood goes into the ground, the ground that is cursed by the sin of the first Adam. But if you remember from last week, you have to understand that as the blood of this son of David goes into the ground, there is power in the blood. There is life in his blood. And the power and life in his blood goes into the cursed ground in order to undo it. And then you begin to see all the elements connect. And you realize this was not a mock coronation. This was not a fake enthronement. He was given a reed because that was his scepter. He was given the robe because he was royalty. He was given the crown, not of precious stone or precious metals, but of thorns, the symbol of the curse because he came to undo the curse. He goes to the cursed cross and wears the cursed ground and his blood flows to the cursed ground in order that he might undo it. The reason why it made sense to no one that day is because that's not how kings act. Kings don't suffer on crosses. Kings don't die in agony. Kings don't lose like that. But this is how he fights. This is how our Lord fights. He fights by sacrificially laying down his life for the ones who would nail him to that cross. This is how he fights and this is how he wins. And when you connect the dots, you realize this is not a mock coronation. This is how Christ is becoming Lord of heaven and earth, suspended between heaven and earth you see both the agony of the cross and the glory of the cross. You see it from heaven's view and from the ground below. Son of man, son of God, between heaven and earth, between two criminals. And then you see this whole passage is screaming to us. This is the king, this is the king. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. 
And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And over his head, they put a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And then they said, He's the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. But precisely because he was the king of Israel is why he refused to come down from that cross. He would drink of his father's cup every last drop of it. For who? For what? The first Adam began naked and without shame in the garden. Through his sin, creation was cursed and filled with thorns. He became aware of his nakedness and shame. He, however, left the garden, not in that nakedness and shame, but rather clothed and his shame covered by an act of mercy of God. The second Adam, Christ our Lord, is stripped of his clothes, subjected to the greatest shame imaginable, nailed, immovable, and suspended between heaven and earth. He is crowned with the very thorn symbolic of the curse itself. He hides his face not from the shame and the curse, but gives up his life in order to undo it. Christ is clothed in nakedness and endures the shame of the cross in order that you might not be clothed in shame and guilt, but be clothed in his righteousness. It is his work that has done it. This is why the first Christians could say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. This is the logic of it. It's grace because what did you do that day? What did you do on Good Friday? What did you do to to contribute to this victory? The text is telling you, you're Barabbas, you're Cain, you're Peter. You're the disciples, you run, you don't contribute anything to this. Jonathan Edwards says, the only thing you've contributed to your salvation is the sin that Christ had to die for. He does all the work, he does it all. This is why when we talk about the finished work of Christ, it is power. When we speak of the finished work of Christ, we are speaking of what he endured, what he suffered to reconcile us to God so that the curse would be broken, so that the thorns would not hold power. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Remember, we're just dirt. We're people from the ground, people from the earth. And when we die, we go back to the cursed ground from where we came. But because of the work of Christ, we will not remain in the ground. He will return and he will breathe life into us once again. We will be resurrected. He will not let his children taste death forever. And so yes, we are sons and daughters of the ground, but we are also sons and daughters of heaven. Christ comes down so that we may go up. His blood spills into the cursed ground to restore us in right relationship. He is stripped naked. He suffered. He faces the shame so that we might not be clothed in shame and guilt, rather with his righteousness. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And it's really, really, really good news. We now are citizens of the kingdom of the crucified king. And this story has to shape us. The story, when we behold it, when we we read it, when we study it, when we read it again and again, when we hear it again and again, it shapes us. That's what it's doing. We have to be shaped by the image of the crucified king. Why? Because our natural tendency is what? The way of Cain. The way of bitterness and envy and jealousy and hatred. We hold on to our hurts and pains and we, we, we're angry, we hate other human beings and what do we have in Jesus? One who is flogged by Roman soldiers who hours later he will die for. See, we are sons of Adam but we can also be sons and daughters of the second Adam. We can reject and resist the world and the ways of Cain and adopt the way of sacrificial love. So we are sons and daughters citizens of the kingdom of the crucified king. And that story, his finished work, has to shape you. And the way you let it shape you is you repeat it again and again and again and again. You tell it again and again and again. In a few moments, we'll go to communion where we're reminded of it again and again and again. Because the story in and of itself has power to change us. Have you ever been in a difficult place in life and there's a song that you hear? And the song out of nowhere just ministers to you. It min- the song like ministers to you and all of a sudden you're in the car and you're crying. And you're not thinking about like what are the application points of this song? Why is this song changing me? What can I learn from this song? The beauty of the song itself has the power to change. Sometimes movie, really good movies will do this as well. A movie will um, be so good or a character live such a noble life that you like, I want to put aside this part of my life and be like him in this area. I want to emulate her in this area. Because good art and, and things that are beautiful have the ability to draw you in and shape you. That is what you must do with the greatest story that's ever been told. You become a cross-shaped person a person who is committed to the way of the Lord of sacrificial love rather than the way of Cain. So we must allow these stories to shape us and to mold us into the image of the crucified King. What did Jesus say? If you want to be worthy of following me, you must take up your cross. How often? All the time. Now the beauty of this is not like it's some doom and gloom story. Oh, it's like, it's like oh, the cross and it's so horrible. And we're just... When you get to know the king, it's the greatest thing in the world. Because Christ gives us the greatest hope. Think of it like this. Remember the image of the cross. Think, see the cross on Golgotha. And you picture someone writhing in agony. And the, and the vultures and the insects and the birds and the, the loss of control of bowels and the blood and the mocking and the spitting. You think of all of that. And you think about how the first writers of the Gospels just say it in one sentence and want to move on because they don't even want to think about it. That's how horrific the cross was. 
And think what God did with that. The most horrific image imaginable has become the greatest image of hope the world has ever known. And if God can take a man writhing in agony on a cross and use that for good and change that image to be a powerful image of good and hope, then he can do it with anything. And whatever sins or issues or faults or failures or mistakes we bring to the table, if Christ can turn a cross to an image of agony, to an image of hope, then who knows he could do with what you bring. Because he's good. He is so good that he turns the cross to an image of hope. And we likewise walk in that image. And it's a hopeful image. It's a good image. It's an inspiring image. Because we see what Christ has done for us. And then we realize, for by grace I have been saved. Christ loved me when I did nothing. He loved me at my worst. So as we prepare for communion, I want all of us to remember that there's a reason why we tell this story again and again and again. Because it's a story that has the power to shape us. And we need to be a cruciform people, a cross-shaped people. This world is in desperate need of cross-shaped people. Jesus says that when you walk in his ways and his paths, you will be like a city on a hill, salt of the earth. Let me tell you, this world needs some cities on a hill right now. And that vocation, that job, has been given to God's people. Citizens of the kingdom of the crucified king. Sons and daughters of earth, sons and daughters of heaven. So let's stand as we take communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed... He breaks bread and he says, take this, this is, this is my body, it's given for you. And we've made this emphasis for several weeks now. It's given for us. When Christ was on trial, he could have called down the angels. He didn't have to plead his innocence, he didn't have to prove his case. Everything was going exactly to plan. Christ, before he's betrayed, says, this is my body, I'm gonna give it for you. I'm gonna give it for you. So the answer to the question, for who, for what? For you, for me. In obedience to his father, Christ gives his life freely. No one takes it from him. So we remember his sufferings and his sacrifice. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup, the blood of the new covenant. And as we often say, when we take this, it's the actual act is declaring the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. When we take it without words, we are declaring the death and resurrection till he returns. And so Lord, just as you demonstrated faithfulness to your father, to you had drank every last drop in that cup, we wanna be faithful to you. You are now king of heaven and earth and all authority rests in you. Help us to be faithful and empower us to fulfill the mission of the church. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. And so, Father, we now turn as we close in worship. We speak of the hope of the cross. We speak of the hope of life again. We speak of the hope of forgiveness. 
and we speak of your goodness, Lord. You have been so good to us in the midst of human suffering, earthly suffering, which abounds everywhere on the ground below. We lift up our gaze to the heavens and focus our eyes on you. You are worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.